0: Well, good morning, my name is Scott Puckett and I'm the pastor of Engaging the World, which is exciting that I have the opportunity to be able to close our series on doubts, dilemmas, and disagreements with the topic of how do Christians disagree with the world? Uh, and by the way, I just wanted to acknowledge from the very beginning that I see myself completely as a, um, not the expert in this category, but the chief learner in this category. So much, much if not all of what I'm going to share today here is what I primarily needed in answering that question. And I hope along the way that some of you will be able to identify and be on a similar journey to me, what it looks like and what it means for us to live in the world that we live in as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, The text, my primary text for today is from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 17. Um, Hear now God's word. You are the salt of the earth. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today's topic, as we look at this here and unpackage it, I want to um, talk more, not so much about what this looks like as, as much as how this looks like um, and what it's portrayed by the people of God and by the church. But I do, I do want to talk about a few key uh, underlying foundational principles that we must just clarify here at the very beginning of this particular topic. First, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are fundamentally in opposition to the world by definition. Jesus' words in John 15 says this, if you were um, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I sent to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then James writes in James chapter four, he goes on, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The teachings are very clear by Jesus himself as well as the followers of Jesus in the scriptures that um, we are not to be friends um, with the world. And by the way, the world is not interested in being friends with the followers of Jesus by definition. We should not be surprised when the world acts worldly because they are acting in, in a consistent way with their very nature we should confidently stand on God's word and the truth and understand that the scriptures tell us that the world has been blinded. For example, second Corinthians chapter four says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And until their eyes are opened by the mercy and grace of God through the gospel, preached by the followers of Jesus, by the way, nothing is going to change them without the work of God happening. That means your social media post, as powerful as it might be, does not have the power to change anything from somebody who's living in the world. That means your bumper sticker, your t-shirt, Your conversation, your stance has no power in and of itself without God working and moving through the preaching of his word and through the transformation of the human heart that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember when I was a a student at Auburn University, I had an ethics professor. In fact, his class, one of my minors was philosophy, so I had to take his course, but he had a course that people were um, literally lined up and wanting to get into. Uh, In fact, there were people that would line up in front of the classroom um, in case people didn't show up on the first day because he would allow people to come into the classroom if first day people that he assumed dropped the class didn't show up. So there was a literally a line outside his door. And the reason why people wanted to be in this class, and I found out quickly after being in it, is that he did a beautiful job, even though he was not a follower of Christ, in talking about issues and really helping to logically explain both sides of an argument he actually gave one of the best presentations on the pro-life, pro-choice um, differences that I'd ever heard before. He, w- he didn't tell us which position he was at. I could guess which one he was on, um, but he actually did an eloquent job expressing the pro-life position, which followers of Jesus Christ hold very cl- um, closely and clearly. Um, but I was amazed at the logic in which he pointed it out. And he had students that were asking questions because he invited questions, which is why people love the class. Um, and he would logically explain, well, if somebody believes this, then this is a logical thing that would follow from it. So it was amazing. People love thinking about it, but you know what? To my knowledge, nobody's mind was changed whatsoever. Because it was not the power of a logical argument that had the ability to change a viewpoint of someone in the world. But it would be requiring something much deeper and much stronger, the power of God working and transforming somebody's heart however, as we're thinking about this topic, it doesn't mean that there's not, that that we disagree with the world and everything. It doesn't mean that there's not common ground that we can have um, with those that are in the world. For example, uh, right, uh, even a broken clock is correct at least twice a day, right? I mean, that idea. In light of common grace, common grace that God gives has illuminated much of the world that we can have common ground. For example, opposition to sex trafficking, for the most part, is something we hold together. Um, The, uh, opposition to, uh, greed or genocide or deception or injustice as a whole. When we see that we can identify, we can relate, we can be on common ground with the world as the church, as the followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we can work with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jehovah witnesses, Mormons. We can work with anybody on these issues to stand strong. If there's a natural disaster Don't ever hesitate to to go by and and to come in and help, you know, um, restore or help somebody, a neighbor, whether or not you're working beside a Buddhist, a Muslim, an atheist whatsoever. We should share that kind of common ground because there is a common grace that God has given us in that. And that is an area that we can work together. But the scriptures tell us that our role um, is clearly not to withdraw from or even judge the world. First Corinthians chapter five, which is a context you're talking about church discipline. Um, in a kind of secondary point, the apostle Paul talks about how, what is our relationship to, to the world? Let me read a little bit from this text in verse nine. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter to not associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world but now I'm writing to you not to associate uh, with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what I have, what I have to, to do with what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church. Um, it is it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. We are to take a stand, and um, we are to be a contrast to the world, and that is to shine in the context of that world. But our place is not, not to judge, um, but our place is to shine the salt, I'm mean gonna shine the light and to give the salt um, that God has called us to in the text that we read earlier. That salt that's preserving from the decay, that is seasoning with vitality, that light that's repelling darkness and guiding us to safety. But how do we actually do that? How do we step in to do that? What does that look like? And I wanna talk in the rest of our time about three things, a posture, a perspective, and a process. First off, the posture. The scriptures make it very clear that we were once, not just the world, but we were part of that. We were enemies of God. We identified with the world in opposition to God. Romans chapter five, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are to be reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were the enemies of God, but he lavished his grace upon us through Christ. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God not as a result of works that no man should boast. Not only that, but we are no longer slaves to sin, but made sons and daughters of the Most High God, Galatians 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, the gospel creates in us a posture of humility, of gratitude, of joy, and of rest. One of my favorite um, musicals or Broadway shows, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's version. He um, has the character of Jean Valjean. And if you know or have seen it, whether it's a movie or on on the stage there, you know that um, the character Jean Valjean being on parole receives mercy and grace from Bishop Muriel after stealing uh, from him uh, all their, their wealth. But when he's brought back by the police officers, um, The bishop says, you forgot these, and he hands him the candlesticks. And the mercy and the grace um, that is given in that moment, it changes his posture for the rest of the story. And from the rest of the story, he's a different person. In fact, the song, the words that he'll sing in the song right after that, he says, I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now, another story must begin. When we have encountered the mercy and grace of God, in a way that has been revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of our hearts, a new story begins. As recipients of God's mercy and grace through Christ, that story begins, and it creates in us a posture of humility, gratitude, joy, and rest. But we need to be aware, too, of the counterfeit postures that are often there and ones that we choose to sit in. I know I do sometimes. There are counterfeit postures that we can be in as the followers of Christ, feeling and portraying, for example, a superior or holier-than-thou attitude. Or feeling or portraying impatience and contempt for those who don't follow Jesus Christ rather than love and compassion. Or how about this, feeling a lack of awe for how deep and how great God's mercy and grace has been given towards us. Paul David Tripp, in writing about losing that awe and the dangers of that. He's actually writing to pastors, but I think it applies to all of us in the church. He says this, he says, for sinners, the road between awe and complaining is very short. You and I were created to live our lives in the shadow of awe. Every word we speak, every action we take, every decision we make, and every desire we entertain was meant to be colored by awe. We were meant to live and minister with eyes gazing upward and outward. We were meant to live with hearts that are searching, hungry, seeking satisfaction, and being satisfied. Bad things happen when pastors, and I'll insert in the church, lose their sense of awe. Bad things happen in ministry when we have no wonder inside of us. Bad things happen in local church leadership when we are no longer amazed. Bad things happen when we look around and nothing impresses us anymore. So my question is, how is your posture doing? How is humility looking and growing in your life? How is gratitude? How is joy? How's rest going? These are things that are ours in Christ Jesus. Posture must be repeatedly practiced to become our nature. Posture must be repeatedly practiced. Let me give you some a couple practical suggestions on this. One, feed your posture truth to digest. It needs it. Take time to reflect on how God has and is still displaying his mercy and grace in your life. Tell stories to your friends, to your spouse, to your children about what God has done. Let those be spilling out. Take time this afternoon as a part of your day of worship to reflect, to go for a walk, to sit in a quiet spot in the house or on the back porch and reflect. Listen to some worship songs. I remember I was driving to um, one of my kids' sporting games and I had about a 45 minute drive and I, and I just told the Alexa or whatever it was in my car, Siri, I forget their names now, um, play me songs about the, how glorious Jesus is. And it did, it was pretty amazing. And I just thought, man, I soaked in for 45 minutes, just song after song, uh, talking about the goodness, the mercy, and the grace, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. It did a wonder for my soul, just that short time. Participate in the spiritual retreat that you heard Andy mention and talk about, which kicks off this coming weekend. There's three of those to choose from. That'd be a great place to jump in. But as we feed our posture, which we desperately need to do, it will also give us clarity about perspective. Perspective. That's the second thing this morning, perspective. The first thing I wanna mention about perspective is as followers of Jesus, we have been made alive in Christ for a reason. And that is to reflect Christ in all that we do. Philippians 2, the apostle Paul is writing, he tells us this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We are to live reflecting this same image that Jesus has. We are to live to continue the mission that Jesus began. John 14, Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And then of course, Jesus' very last words, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel creates in us a perspective on the importance of living on mission and connecting with those who need the gospel. I was talking to a, a former missionary um, this uh, past week, which uh, is a great thing I get opportunity to lots of times, but um, he's living back in the United States and he was telling me what his biggest prayer and his biggest battle is, having been on the mission field in like a third world country. He said, he said this, he said, I want uh, my, my biggest... Um, Struggle is the distractions of the busyness and the productivity that I experience here living in the United States. The distractions of the busyness and the productivity. He went on to say, I said, I want my day to be driven by how I can serve God today, not so much in how I can make money to pay my bills this month, which is what he feels like the rat race that's all around here. A little bit more money, pay the bills and do a little bit more extra fun stuff but he sees it as a distraction, as the busyness from that. You see, there's counterfeit perspectives that exist among the church, among the followers of Jesus. So here's some of the ones that you may have experienced like me. I give missional living the spare time I can find in my schedule. Or I have some spare time, I'll try to live on mission. Or I need to withdraw from the world so I can remain untainted by it. Or this one, I can faithfully proclaim the gospel by simply living a good life and not boldly sharing the hope I have in Jesus. Of course, you know we don't say any of these out loud, right? These are undercurrent thoughts. Or the inverse of that one, I can faithfully proclaim the gospel by boldly sharing the hope I have in Jesus, but not thinking it matters how I live personally and privately. So my question to you is how is your perspective on the importance of living on mission and connecting with those who need the gospel? Like posture, our perspective must be repeatedly practiced to become our nature as God is shaping us. Here are some practical suggestions that might be helpful. One, prayerfully repenting and asking God for a growing love for the things that he loves. See, my hope here is that you would not be feeling guilty and burdened down and, or feeling shame, but this would draw your heart like i praying it would draw mine into repentance, into acknowledging it, confession, agreeing with God, what the state of our heart and minds often are, and asking God to do the work that his spirit is already fully prepared um, and there to do to give us a growing love for the things that he loves. If you were at our missions conference back in February, you remember at the uh, Kaleidoscope, Jonathan Hastings, one of our missionaries on the stage, he was asked this, how did you, how did you get involved? How did you really get, make that first step in uh, living missionally? And his answer was so simple and so profound. He said this, he said, I began, but just growing up in this church, I began by simply choosing to say yes to outreach and mission opportunities. He just intentionally said, I'm gonna start saying yes. I don't think that meant every single one, but he just started saying and practicing saying yes. What a simple yet profound way for us to begin in thinking and live more on perspective. One of the things that we're committed to as a church is the starting point, um, class and process. Um, I'm excited to say that if you're in a journey group, um, that's gonna be coming more specifically through the journey groups in the fall. But if you're not, we offer those from time to time like we did um, at the missions conference. But we're here, you don't have to wait for a class. We're here, I'm here to help you in that process immediately. Would love to talk to you about what does it look like to take next steps to start shaping our perspective, living on mission. You see though, as we feed our posture, as we feed our perspective, it will fuel us for the process. Third point process. Simply put, the process is doing what Jesus did. What did he do? He came into our world. I love that one of our philosophies and vision as a church is incarnational living. Why is that so profound? Because that is exactly what Jesus did, right? Left heaven left the constant praise of angels to put on human flesh and to walk this earth. Secondly, he brought mercy and grace to our brokenness. If you were looking for Jesus back 2000 years ago, where did you need to find him most of the time? Around broken people, because that's where he was. And then what did Jesus do lastly? He invited us to trust him by following him. He did that constantly, person after person. So our process is identical to Jesus. We've got nothing to improve on because there's no room for improvement. But let me unpackage that just briefly what that looks like. We have to enter the world with the aroma of Christ. That's the incarnational living that we're talking about. We have to enter into that world. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2 says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So we gotta ask ourselves, what is the aroma that we're giving off? Because you do know you're giving off one, right? I'm giving off one. Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church is giving off one. So what is the aroma you're giving to your coworkers? If you've got an honest one, ask them. What is the aroma you're giving off to your extended family? You know, the people sometimes you just kind of tolerate around the holidays. What is the aroma you're giving off students to your classmates? I know summer's hit but you're probably still hanging out with those guys or gals. What is the aroma you're giving off to your neighbors? Because you're giving off one. The question is simply, what is it? What is the aroma you're giving off at sporting events? What is the aroma you're giving off when you're standing in line at the grocery store? What is the aroma you're giving off when you're stuck in traffic? Whenever our attitude, by the way, or actions seem inconsistent with the love and life of Jesus, we should pause and be curious and ask why. Let me say that again. Whenever our attitude or actions seem inconsistent with the love and life of Jesus, we should pause and be curious and ask ourselves why. What is blocking me from having the posture of humility, of gratitude, and of rest? What is blocking me from living on mission and connecting with those who need the gospel? What well am I drinking from at this moment that isn't living water that Jesus promised to give? This gives us insights on where repentance and faith are needed and where we must begin. And we have to go where people are because that's what Jesus did. We have to engage. Remember, I mentor and also fellow pastor, Burt Boykin, a pastor from, PCA pastor from Alabama. Um, He surprised many of us, I guess four or five years ago, where he left traditional pulpit church ministry to go work for an organization, which is primarily evangelism driven. Um, And he spends most of his times in local bars, making contacts, having, developing friendships with people. And now he has a parish that he calls it. Um, of people that he hangs out with that are very different than him, that do not look quite like him, but who have grown to love him and he has grown to love them. And they have church in these places. I was asking him about that. And he wrote back to me by email and he said this, he said, I was asking him, why did you, why did you do that? Um, he said this, I suppose every pastor has some sort of desire to do evangelism I would even contend that it's at the heart of why each of us went into ministry in the first place. We want to reach people with the gospel. We want to see people converted. We want to grow the church with converts rather than transfers. And we all start out thinking that's what we're going to do. But before long, we get caught up in the bubble of the church and don't actually have time or space to do what we felt called to do in the first place. The demands of the church are huge. The administrative needs are never ending. The existing Christians in our group have abundance of needs, and we must shepherd them. And to be honest, they are the ones who pay our salary. So actually, so actual, intentional, strategic, evangelistic activity with the unchurched typically gets pushed to the side. Of course, we're doing stuff with our kids and meeting people in the ballpark, school, neighborhood, et cetera. And while that's incredibly valuable and really does count, our focus is more on kids, um, our kids than it is on strategic evangelism. What evangelism does happen is sort of, by the way, rather than intentional. But that desire deep within to do evangelism still nags at us. And we feel guilty, frustrated, and anxious about it all. So we grab at a few new strategies, programs, materials, etc., in an attempt to do evangelism. Give them a shot, teach them to our people, and still don't do evangelism. So we look for the next and newest plan. This one guaranteed to propel all of us in the church toward active evangelism. Only this new approach fails too, and we go back to feeling defeated, similar to the treadmill lifestyle of works righteousness. There was so much in his email response to me that I could identify with as a pastor and maybe you too as a church member. My friend Bert is living on a mission like he never has before. And you know what he said? It's improved my mental and physical health. He says, I'm more joyful and I'm at peace than I've ever been. I wonder why. Jesus comes, he enters into that world, but he also brought mercy and grace to the brokenness that he found there. He brought, brought and inserted that. And you know, how that, you know where that starts for us? That starts with being willing to be vulnerable, displaying our own brokenness from our own story where Jesus is the hero. Do you know one of the greatest things that you could do for somebody that you're trying to reach for Christ, a family member, a relative, a coworker, whatever the case is here, is to share your own brokenness and share how Jesus has come and met you in that and forgiven you or healed you or empowered you Let those stories come out. We have to learn their story, by the way, before we assume we know their story. We wanna share our story, but we gotta learn their story. You know, one of the things that Jesus did in a profound way that we often forget is that Jesus asked a lot of questions. If you wanted to count them, he asked 307 questions that we have reported in the gospels. And listen to the kinds of questions that Jesus asked being omniscient, knowing all the answers ahead of time, but as a way to invite and to press in to the non-believers around him. Here's some of the questions. He would say, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Do you see this woman? What is your name? What do you want me to do for you? How long has this been going on? Do you want to get well? Who are you looking for? Who do you say that I am? Do you love me more than these? Jesus was asking questions all the time, questions he already knew the answers to legitimately. We don't. But the time and space he took to invite people to know that he wanted to hear them and have them express it, it's a powerful example for us. Folks, this is the ministry of the gospel, doing it the way Jesus did it. It's not an alternative way. It is the way. Some practical things to think. Well, one, we invite others to join us in trusting and following Jesus was the next thing that Jesus did. Not only did he come to them, not only did he embrace their brokenness, but he invited them to join in trusting. And we must invite people to join and trust in following Jesus. We aren't getting them to sign up for Christianity, but we're inviting them to join us on a daily intimate journey as we follow Jesus. We are fellow pilgrims Another thing that caught me from my friend Bert's email back, he says this. He said, I just, I just dove into the deep end and tried to start swimming. I'm not a good swimmer, certainly not a good evangelist, but I've learned that in today's world, the unbeliever almost prefers the guy who's just doggy paddling more than the super proficient Olympic swimmer type evangelist. So I press on. That's the kind of faith and power that we have when we have the gospel that we proclaim. When we, have beg- when we are beggars, simply showing other beggars where to find food. God's not looking for our proficiency and the ability to interact with the world. He's looking for our availability and our dependence on him. So we bring them along the journey with us. We extend to them the love of Jesus, whether they end up following him or not, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus has already shown us what this looks like as we unpack it here a little bit. The need for posture, the need for perspective, and the need for the process, he's already laid it out for us. So the question is really not what we're going to do, but how we're gonna do it. How are we living up um, to share that good news, that gospel, so that our lights will shine before others, so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Pray with me. God, we are in desperate need of your work, of your Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in the world and yet the call to be not of it. God, thank you for your challenge for us to be salt and light. And God, even the warning to make sure the salt hasn't lost its saltiness. So, God, would you equip us more and more, even as we respond in repentance now, as we come to your table, God, being reminded. Uh, the forgiveness that is ours through Christ, but also Marianne, not only have we been freed from the guilt of sin, but we've been freed from the power of sin so that we might live as new creatures in Christ Jesus, that we might live available to you, that you would work in and through us, God, that you would draw, um, God, those that are your lost sheep home through the work and the ministry of your church and through us and through Mitchell Road in particular. So God, we just ask that you continue to do that. And as we come to your table now, you prepare our hearts to, to rejoice to be filled, um, to be empowered. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.